Welcome back to another episode of the Desi VC podcast everybody. I'm your host Akash Pat and this is a show where we break down the nuances of investing in the tech startup ecosystem. Over the last 50 episodes or so, we've spent time understanding the mechanics of investing in startups in India. However, going forward, I'd also like to shed some light on other aspects that round up the tech ecosystem. Over the next few weeks, I'll be speaking with startup lawyers well versed in topics such as negotiations, M&A, deal making, fundraising, term sheets and other legal aspects that sometimes may haunt founders if done incorrectly. To kick things off with the legal series, I have with me Siddharth Modi, who's a partner at Desai and Devanji, a law firm that focuses on core areas of commercial and financial activities across PE and venture capital among other asset classes as well. Siddharth himself has spent 17 years in the industry and has had a unique experience of watching the startup ecosystem evolve to where it is today. On today's episode, we will be discussing the importance of startup lawyers, the role that they play along every step in the ecosystem, and getting to the specifics about negotiations a founder may find himself or herself during the lifetime of running a company. Before we head into the episode, I'd like to recommend everybody to view the glossary mentioned in the episode notes for definitions of certain jargons used in the episode. We've tried to keep this as simple as possible, but in case there are phrases that may confuse you, please look into the notes. Now having said that, let's head in and listen to my conversation with Siddharth. Siddharth, welcome to the DCVC podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Likewise, Akash. Likewise. So, willing to speak with you for a long time. So, I'm glad that we got this opportunity to speak together. Me too. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And before we proceed, I wanted to thank Prachi of Lawfitty Solutions for helping set this up, and more importantly, help me understand the importance of this series. Typically I have VCs joining me here on the podcast but I've lately begun to observe that there's a need for education especially among young founders in the country about startup law legal mechanics at various stages of the startup life cycle and everything else that comes between that now you seem to be at a very great vantage point where you've had this opportunity to see how the ecosystem has really played out both from the first wave that we saw way back in 2010 and the highs of 2016 to where it is right now so what i'm really curious to understand is how did you come to the conclusion that this was the space that you wanted to spend your career in well uh, you know i for me as a kid i have always seen lawyers around me i i i belong to a family of lawyers um, so well you can say that that's where it all came into me and uh, most of uh, my family uh, are litigation lawyers uh, so you know i started incidentally i started my career uh, with a hardcore litigation practice uh, and you know it, it 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 was it was great fun to understand and learn how the court of law interprets different contracts uh, whether it's real estate whether it's commercial um, contracts and i think uh, you know different judges have different ways of interpretation and different principles of interpretation i think it was it was very fascinating and i actually uh, did that for initial 3 4 years and i also was working 
uh, while I was studying law and it was all litigation uh, training. And I thought that that training gave me a very solid base when I switched from litigation to corporate, uh, which is, you know, your m and private equity venture capital transactions. Because what I realized is that uh, a lot of these transactions, a lot of these documents, the way they are drafted and uh, you know if there are disputes what are the ways in which the courts will typically look at this how they will interpret this the contracts and i found it particularly more interesting because i have seen uh, a, a lot about you know judgments and how the courts have interpreted it so i thought that when i'm drafting this for my corporate client i can do a lot more justice to it by uh, guiding advising my client what are the items which the courts will not entertain at all because of certain principles of certain jurisprudence which we have seen or what are the ways in which the courts may be okay to look at certain aspects of your transactions and just try to give that advice to the client and help him draft it that way so that you know it is legally kosher and you know you kind of give that uh, you know try to incorporate the commercial understanding that the client wants to incorporate maybe certain cases i have to tell them that this is this is an understanding that you may have commercially but legally it has no standing at all so you cannot have this kind of language versus you know telling them that what this is the way you can tweak certain parts and make it perhaps legally enforceable so you know i think that kind of was very interesting for me and kind of uh, you know pushed me uh, from from litigation and even as we speak, uh, I also have litigation practice. But I think this is one thing which I was very excited about. Uh, and, you know, I was always uh, very keen to learn different aspects of law, different aspects of interpretation. And that's that's how I guess uh, I landed where I landed. And it has been almost now 20 years, uh, two decades in the profession that I've been practicing uh, law and advising my corporate clients as well as uh, the litigation clients. It's a fantastic journey. And as I previously mentioned, it gives you the opportunity to have seen the evolution that's come about both on the private equity side in the startup ecosystem and with how VCs have evolved along the way. Now, I want to take this opportunity to demystify uh, the myths and really help founders understand the importance of having a player like yourself in part of the whole process. Now let's define the role a lawyer plays in the ecosystem today and the importance of it, because I have seen, and I'm sure you have, and most of, you know, you ask the VCs, they'll confirm this as well. A lot of founders today rely on their colleagues and network for some quick advice regarding legal aspects. Now we understand that law is, you know, not as simple. And you did mention that it, it's, it's almost a game of interpretation at some point. And founders believe that they, or at least they try and make an effort to save a little bit of money um, when they're starting off. And they think this is part of the whole bootstrapping process, unfortunately, and this is not really what bootstrapping is all about. And they try to take the quick route out. And they often end up asking their colleagues who perhaps done this process themselves. Now, what are the pitfalls when somebody does something like this? Because I personally believe that the founders may not be paying today for it, but they are going to pay for it in the future. It's such a pain in the ass to fix mistakes backwards, especially when it comes to accounting, legal, HR, you know, the tech stack. Sometimes it's even very impossible to do so. So in your experience of being in the industry for like two decades, 
how would you really define the role that a lawyer plays today and the importance of having one as part of your journey from day one if from a founder perspective okay so let me break uh, your questions into two parts uh, what is the lawyer's role i think it's a very pertinent question that you ask and i think it's very important that uh, people understand the role uh, whether it's a, a investor or whether it's a promoter i think the way i look at it a lawyer's role is to to facilitate a transaction the lawyer's role is to obviously guide their clients whether is promoter or investor that how can you achieve the commercial objective that you guys have agreed amongst yourself what are the protections that you should be seeking uh keeping this point about that the role is simply to facilitate protect your clients and be pragmatic uh in the in the approach what unfortunately happens uh, is you know when there are when there are when there are when there are lawyers on both the sides of the table um, honestly it's not a war between two lawyers you know sometimes i wonder why do why do people look at it uh, that you know it will always be very contentious why it will always be very argumentative sometimes i fail to understand because actually it should not be uh, and uh, you know i have had experience i have had occasions to work with several law firms lawyers uh where we have not had this kind of uh, argumentative uh, 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 you know arguments or negotiations it is pretty smooth because oh, you know what is important is that a promoter and an investor are doing a commercial deal and what the lawyer should under explain to their respective clients and they should also tell each other when they meet for negotiations is that you know this is how your clients are protected this is how our clients are protected and this is how we execute a commercial understanding that the clients have reached unfortunately sometimes it so happens that you know uh, some sort of unnecessarily arguments come into the negotiating table and uh, you know i think it's all about attitude arch so you know it is it is so long as a lawyer understands that the role is really to facilitate and give the advice to your clients on what are the best ways to protect yourself it's not about attacking the promoter or promoter attacking the investor because they you know it is very critical important to understand that uh, uh, you know after the investment the investors and promoter are going to be on the same side of the table and they are going to do the business together and it is in investors interest also that the promoter is happy and the you know and 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 he is given the freedom that he ought to have to uh capitalize the business to run the business because if you try and take that freedom away from promoter the promoter is not going to uh in the process the promoter is not the promoters will not be able to express himself which will affect your revenues which is not what any investor would want so 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 the first point is lawyer's role is to really facilitate uh, and i think uh, you know it is it is it is it is important that a lot of lawyers should see this picture that you know it's all a transaction they are all going to be the same set of the table and it's really not a war honestly it is simply uh, there are certain aspects that promoters are sensitive about there are certain aspects that the investor is sensitive about and i think it's just understanding each other's uh, position and respecting it at the end of the day instead of you know uh, having some sort of a battle a legal battle uh, if i may say that so 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 that is on the lawyer's role on 
the second part i want to divide your question into two parts like i said in the beginning the second part is about uh, you know a lot of promoters not really uh, believing that it is an expense worth incurring and they would rather speak with their friends and seek some sort of informal advice or some a lot of times i've seen they speaking and taking advice from the company secretary and accountants you know uh, depending on which kind of promoters are you looking at but let me there let me tell you uh, akash uh, it's it, it, i'm pleasantly surprised and i'm very happy to see that change over a decade uh, if i may just you know maybe uh, if i were to look at a deal which was uh, around 10 years back the promoters perhaps at that stage were having this attitude which you just mentioned about you know why don't i speak with my company secretary or a chartered accountant or let me speak to some uh, friend a colleague of mine and i don't want to spend money you know i or let's use the same lawyer as investor uh, let's save money you know uh, it's fine uh, we need money desperately and you know let's just sign the dotted line uh, without understanding what they're signing up to but this uh, i must say has changed and which is why i said i'm pleasantly surprised i'm very happy that the uh, that the promoters now have realized the worth the importance of a lawyer a uh, importance of an independent lawyer so uh, very rarely you will see common lawyers now for investors and promoters um, and they have they 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 have now understood if i were to do a contrast for like 10 years back and now uh, people used to sign all sort of for lack of better language uh, very one sided clauses uh, and then regret it uh, maybe 5 years down the line when the exit time comes and you know there are uh, there is there is double dip in liquidation preference there is and what not you know there are several other things nitigities in the legal documents but now the promoters are very very conscious number one like i said they appoint an independent good lawyer they are willing to spend money uh, on a good law firm which is great to see not because i am a lawyer and it helps me i am saying because they have realized the importance of the lawyer in a deal and uh, uh, and i think what is also important is in the ecosystem the investors have also realized it that what are the clauses which is unfair to ask from a promoter which perhaps would have been fair 10 years back uh, but now the investors are also okay and flexible in terms of uh, you know what is their ask you know so typically uh to give you a few illustrations like no no promoter i have seen giving an unlimited liability now uh, when they ask for indemnity it's always a capped liability um and there is no dispute now there is no fight on this there was a phase which is it was a it was a given that there is no cap but you know now uh, there is a cap uh, invest promoters have become matured promoters have over a period of time uh, realize importance of uh, having a lawyer and what they can bring on the table so a lot of these clauses now which used to be very one sided earlier now there's a strong pushback from promoters through their lawyers competent lawyers and i think somewhere investors have also realized it and uh, they are also open to it it's not that investors also so therefore i am saying that it is a pleasant change for both sides investors also have realized the importance that there are certain clauses which may not be absolutely fair and uh, you know they are also uh, welcoming certain pushbacks from the promoters i have also seen a lot of instances where the investors have insisted that the promoter should hire an independent competent lawyer see there when when you have an investor saying this uh, it speaks a lot about the character of that investor because he doesn't want to take unfair advantage of a promoter 
because usually at a seed level at a series a pre series a level promoters are little handicapped and they will always look up to the investor that why right. don't you tell us you know who is the right advisor for us and then investor if you really want can you know <laughs> suggest some advisors who is not very active in this market but i have in my experience i have seen that investors wants a fair game it's a fair play it should be a fair game for both promoters and and and, and the investors so that is what i wanted to just share uh, my experience of what is the complete outlook has changed uh, you know before 10 years and uh, what we what we see now you're absolutely right it's a collaborative experience and process at the end of the day it's not about taking over the conversations it's more about how much value can you add because the more value you're able to add from whatever aspect and vantage point you're sitting at either you're an investor or you're um a legal expert our jobs at the end of the day is to help the founders get to and realize their dreams and how easy can we make that process it's yeah. not about of course at the end of the day we all have vested interests but we also need to keep in mind that our vested interest is 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 in their best interest to succeed so if Absolutely. they end up succeeding at the end of the day we are actually doing a good job ourselves because that really Absolutely. builds a lot of good karma for us more importantly it brings revenue back that's kind of like why we are all in the business Absolutely. now you mentioned something about how founder mentality has changed in the last 10 15 years and how today the founders and promoters um are extremely cautious and are beginning to understand the importance of having somebody like this in your ecosystem and part of your process and sort of the vcs they're supporting this so if i'm a founder today at what stage should i be thinking about speaking to a lawyer when should that process actually happen because first part of your response i heard things like series a seed now if i'm just starting out when am i thinking as a found from a founder perspective that this is the right time it should be at incorporation should be post incorporation should be during fundraise because we've also seen and i might be a little naive here because i understand we see at least the legal aspects from the us perspective where in for instance um you know there is pre incorporation you know process and there's a post incorporation process and to give an instance many a times founders also don't understand that they need to buy their equity in the company they're not given that you know that's a, that's something that happens in the post incorporation side right. so legal aspects like this sometimes unfortunately gets brushed under the rugs or some founders are like mm, okay we didn't even know that was a process like because the cost of the share is very minimal at that point you're still buying into your equity or your um share in the company so things like these right so when is the right time for a founder to start thinking about it well uh, you know i think uh, you know it's 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 very it will be it is a very odd question for me because i would say right from day one right but i do understand that uh, you know that they are particularly when you are setting up you know you you are very conscious about uh, the money that you want to spend uh, but i would say that you know you can always there are a lot of company company secretaries who can offer this kind of uh, services to you who can help you set up your uh, memorandum of association your articles of association i would say uh, that maybe initially you can live with that because they will look at your compliance part you don't necessarily at that stage if you can't afford one i like right. i said that you should if you can afford or you know you can you should invest because it's important that you mm-hmm. start your company on the right footing 
rather than not doing it because you know there's a cost of re undoing it and the cost of compounding etc which you have to pay mm-hmm. eventually so therefore ideal is uh, have lawyer from day one if you can't maybe you should definitely have some advisor a professional advisor like a company secretary who can help your compliance with but the moment you start entering into commercial contracts i think that is the key that is a place where you definitely should start consulting you know and there are so many different law firms at you know different sizes of law firms mm-hmm. um, uh, you know not everyone may uh, you know I, i'm sure you will find someone who is who is not very expensive and who fits into your budget but i think it's important the moment you start entering into commercial contracts because commercial contracts are the contracts where you are now exposing to a third party party the liability as a company so whether it is uh, what what kind of covenants are you undertaking to them are they reasonable covenants do you do you need uh, adequate protection uh, that is i think very critical for you because and this is going to help you eventually when you raise funds from an investor an investor is going to do a legal diligence on your company if you don't do it then eventually the investor is going to ask you to fix all of that and you know maybe highlight all these items as a legal risk uh, from their business point of view and maybe make some adjustment to their valuation so therefore it is better that you know you start investing uh, in a in a good professional advisor right from day one or the day when you start entering into your commercial contracts because your entire structure your legal structure should be legally viable legally permissible uh, you should make sure that there are no leakages uh, from a regulatory point of view in addition to tax of course you have to also get a tax advisor on board but you have to make sure all of those contracts are uh, you know properly worded drafted so that the liability on the company is not much and all these you are doing for the company not really for a uh, for an investor when investor right. comes and invest in your company is eventually going to look at what are the liabilities that the company has because of the company's undertaken substantial liability unusual out of the ordinary liability the investor is obviously going to make either an adjustment to his uh, to his investment amount or he is going to ask him to fix all of that again so might right. as well do that uh, you know uh, the day you start entering into commercial contract a contract with an outsider so all your memorandum of association articles of association they are all contracts within you within the shareholders those you can always fix but when you the moment you go outside with your commercial contracts with your business contracts i think you should be a little more careful so perhaps if you can't afford from day one the trigger should be that that's a great point that you bring up because one of the things that i wanted to again delve into is how much founders rely on their mentor or founder networks like even for instance when it comes to things like what should i be looking for in a lawyer like that answer changes at various stages you know when you're talking about somebody who's when you're starting off at the beginning as you said it's going to be a very different answer than somebody who's probably at a series e and you're looking at quite an expansive sort of um, portfolio at that point to be understanding where the support really is required so again from a founder perspective i'm putting myself in their shoes and trying to understand and i, I did source a few questions as well uh in preparation for this so these are some of these are generated by founders who have gone through this whole process themselves and either discovered the answers the more bitter and the hard way or people who just had some questions and they probably are thinking about starting a company at some point but still need to like think about this so one of the questions that was crowdsourced was what should i look for how do i know if somebody is competent because often times i will ask my colleague and they'll say oh we are using this person you got to like speak to him but how do i know if this person or the firm is a right fit for my firm because this sex- sector expertise also that kind of comes into play sometimes 
and each sector sometimes comes with challenges on the regulatory front could be as you said while structuring of some of these contracts and understanding and having that kind of uh, expertise in knowing how to do business in that particular sector that the company is operating in so how do you or what would you end up recommending to founders who is who's asking this sort of a question well uh, again i would say a very very uh, important question uh, particularly because it's really not about see okay maybe you have not asked asked me this in so many words but i i wish to uh, say a little bit about that a lot of people uh, founders not just founders even investors sometimes uh, have a wrong perception that uh, a lawyer who is associated with a very large firm is necessarily a good lawyer who is um, with a, with a smaller firm or with a boutique law firm is not a good lawyer so honestly speaking if i was the founder if i was the investor for me it is about is is the lawyer that i am dealing with does he know his subject right like you know the founders have asked you and that should be the question really not about whether he is associated with any particular brand that's not relevant in my opinion um now how do how does the founder know who is the right person i think there are two ways one is uh, you know i think founders need to do a little bit of research on who which is which is the lawyer who has done what kind of deals uh, so if he is using the lawyer for a private equity uh, work that is a slightly different uh, experience than a venture capital uh, work it th- these are two separate sort of transactions this has this has some to certain separate uh, set of terms uh, which a lawyer a lawyer who is necessarily good with private equity i'm not saying he is bad at venture capital but it is not the same so therefore it is very critical to understand the bifurcation and see that what kind of lawyers have done what kind of work uh, so one is the research that they can do whether on some profiles or google or and the uh, you know linkedin and some other searches and the second thing is to ask some other other founders that who have they used and see the experience in 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 doing this because at the end of the day a founder needs a lawyer who has done this kind of work that is critic very very critical uh, you also mentioned about you know certain certain things are very sector specific uh, which are, again i completely accept uh, you know have, if you are uh, an nbfc and nbfc is a highly regulated it's a financial services it's highly regulated by reserve bank of india there are multiple you know, notifications regulations around that uh, uh, so therefore i think what our founder should look for is that what is the kind of business that they are into and you know uh, and and look for a lawyer who has done such kind of work before or listen to some other either an investor or uh, some other promoter and get a reference from them because but the focus should not really be on the brand the focus should be on uh, on on whether that particular partner or a lawyer has done enough venture capital transactions now if i have done a lot of private equity transactions and i have done zero venture capital transactions i may not be able to do justice because it's like i said it's not the same uh, i will do all i will put all the and you know the private equity uh, as as we all understand it is a is a more more mature investment you know it's an investment right. when a company is much more mature at a venture capital you may not necessarily require that so your clauses are much more softer if i may use that expression or word 
than a private equity investment. So that is critical to choose your lawyer by seeing what has he done, he or she has done in past, um, or take a reference from someone. Uh, uh, but definitely do a little bit of research uh, before reaching out to someone as to particularly see what has he done in that particular sector or uh, particular kind of work, and also whether that person has whether the experience has been good by you know even if i let's say google and find some few names four five names it's important to speak with some uh, some of the investors or other promoters to see that how was their experience because that is also very critical not everyone may have had a great experience working with a lawyer you know uh, yeah. someone must have used that lawyer but they must have not had the great experience so i think it's it's important to choose your lawyer very wisely i think it is it is like you know you choosing any other advisor very smartly. It's not just he is a lawyer and there is there is an assumption that he is a smart guy, you know. So you they need to do a little bit of uh, research by checking and asking around. I mean, there were some really interesting points that you brought up during that segment there, and one of it was trying to understand how much experience this particular lawyer has in that space that you're operating in, which kind of helps you from where you're sitting as a founder to understand if this is a good match for you or not. Now, another sort of question that I'm recently getting from a lot of founders who are thinking about starting up is, hey, I don't have enough money to start my company itself. So obviously, I'm going to be bootstrapping and cutting uh, corners wherever necessary. But what I want to do at this point is I want to give out equity. You know, I want to think about compensating people who are helping me earlier on in terms of giving them equity. So there are founders who are thinking about providing equity points to some attorneys at the outset in terms of compensation. Now, what would your advice be to founders who are thinking from this perspective and saying, I need a, a you're, are you stuck with that person? Because whoever you bring onto the cap table sometimes will not leave until you give them an exit. Or is this sort of a thing, which is almost for life, wherein, you know, this, you've, you've kind of like stuck on for something and you might not be able to bring somebody else into the door. Is that a mistake in terms of an approach today that founders are thinking from? Yes, sir. So, you know, uh, I am firstly, I'm not sure uh, from a regulatory point of view under the new companies act, uh, whether this is the most best, best and the smartest thing to do. And I uh, have got this offer several times in, in my two decades of experience and I've never taken it. That's just the practice that I follow. Yeah. Um, uh, but having said that, I think that there are, from a regulatory point of view, uh, there are there are some there are some restrictions which has come into issuance of uh, shares uh, to your advisors in in India. So uh, I think in any case, this practice uh, was there, but I have never, like I said, opted for it. But now I think there is also some regulatory challenges. So leaving the regulatory part aside, assuming the law were to allow it, just as a hypothetical conversation, because I want to answer your question that you have asked me, I would say that it is not a good idea. Because, and I would say this because, like I said, I am not. I have my doubts about the legality of it. But leaving that aside, purely if you are actually doing this, what happens is as your company grows bigger. Now under the under the under the under the new companies act, uh, you know, if you are a small shareholder, you your rights are you know there is a threshold given under the companies act. So long as you are above the threshold, then you can file certain actions of operation mismanagement, etc. But even right. if you are below the threshold, 
I, if I was a promoter, uh, and I'm purely talking commercials and not lawyer, I would not take the risk of some investor or some advisor who has maybe become rogue over a period of time. Maybe we have had some bad experiences with him or his team. and i don't want him to sit on my cap table because i know that uh, some shareholder might create some nuisance uh, to my company when i go big so i would avoid not just advisors meaning not just lawyers uh, i know this practice you know some company secretaries have been given some chartered accountants have been given and some other advisors have been given i i have never encouraged this i have never i, I as a lawyer have never taken it and i I never advise my clients to do it purely because it can become an issue while i understand what they are trying to do and they are trying to save money and they want to make sure that you know it's a win win for both and all that but i don't think it's a it's 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 something that i would advise because of what i said because you know once you are on the cap table uh, firstly no new investor no sophisticated investor would want to see this kind of people on your cap table number one number two is the fact that they can create a lot of nuisance in your company Mm-hmm. theoretically they may not they may not do it but theoretically they can uh, if they want to and i have seen instances like that uh, right. where they have created some instances because what happens is when the new investor comes and he says okay i want these people out he can simply say that i am i want a particular valuation before below which i will not leave the company and if you still want to do it you know you know there are ways and means where uh, someone can uh, you know uh, unnecessarily delay the process frustrate the investor and the investor may not be available with you so i right. think these are much more much bigger risk than just agreeing on some fees and kind of encashing it right there instead of uh, offering them any equity i think equity should only be reserved for uh, under esofs which are a very legitimate v- uh, way of uh, mm-hmm. acknowledged under the companies act under law and and there is a logical commercial reason that you are you are incentivizing your employees for it and it should just be left at that in my opinion That's a really good point, and it actually becomes a good segue into what we wanted to discuss. And I wanted to use the first half of the episode just to like set the foundation and basics and understanding the importance and the role that the um, lawyers play in the ecosystem. But more importantly, what I'm curious to like delve deeper into with you is talking about execution-focused approaches when it comes to deal negotiations. Now, what do we mean by deal negotiations? Right, we can be talking about as you previously alluded to as well. This could be contracts that you could have with your clients. This could be negotiations that you may end up having with your investors. Could be a first round investor, second, so on and so forth. Now, how do you advise founders when they're thinking about negotiations? Because I think the first aspect of their first interaction with a negotiation typically happens when they're offered their first term sheet and more often than not many founders even today and I'm aware about this do not push back on some of the terms associated or put into the term sheet itself and some of them might just say this is standard practice this is basically what everybody does uh from a VC perspective this is what we've been issuing how should a founder be thinking about looking at a term sheet when i when a vc hands out my first for the first raise seed pre seed whatever round it is what should i be looking out for what are the red flags in your opinion that any founder just needs to keep an eye out for uh so i i feel that they should firstly term sheet when a, when an investor throws a term sheet at you uh, and i'm right now stepping into the shoes of a promoter um i think about i encourage my clients actually whether it's an investor or promoter 
is to keep the term sheet is actually not a legal document uh, you know it's it's a, it's a purely a commercial heads heads of terms a lot of people call it heads of terms or term sheet or non binding sort of understanding between the parties where you just lay out yeah. the head head broad basically head. rules of engagement rules so i think you know uh, what a promoter should look for is that try and not get into too many specifics uh, even i have seen a lot of investors actually insisting on a lot of meat in the term sheet the term sheet are quite extensive the moment you see that it is a very extensive term sheet if it is let's say if uh, on an average let's say more than four four pages or maybe more than three or four pages that in my opinion would be it's extensive the moment you see that it is going like 15 pages 10 12 pages i think you should immediately consult a promoter should get a lawyer to review its terms because ideally either either involve a lawyer okay if you don't want to involve a lawyer what they should avoid what they should negotiate with the investor is just keep the terms to a very high level headings and say that we will we will spell, uh, you know set it out in the definitive documents because the definitive document stage the promoters will definitely should definitely have a lawyer uh, so therefore you know to give you certain illustrations liquidation preference uh, uh, in a in a liquidation preference the promoter has to make sure that he is not offering a double dip to the investor so he either gets the fmv or he gets his investment amount back so it's usually 1x of whatever is given and you know normally investors would ask for participative rights after his 1x is distributed he should look he should never agree at a vc stage he should never agree to that so uh, liquidation preference if if investors is asking now just to take this example forward let's say investors have detailed out an liquidation clause which is quite detailed extensive <laughs> he should simply say all that we will give you liquidation preference let's agree on the terms of the liquidation preference what it will be how it will be paid to you in the definitive documents because what promoter is doing to an investor is saying that i acknowledge that right that you have as an investor however the details we will set it out in the definitive documents because allow me to consult my lawyer for that before i agree into specifics with you this is just one of the few examples second example could be your exit rights you know what are your exit rights what is the period after which what are the obligations that i can undertake uh, you know uh, a lot of people say that you have to give me an exit by way of an ipo where they don't understand that ipo is a function of market i can't tell you you can't put an obligation me to do an ipo you know so you know these are smaller examples that exit obligation uh, he should be very careful about we can again acknowledge the concept that yes i will give you an exit after so and so period but right. let's get into the terms and specifics i use the word specifics always leave it to broader terms high level broad terms don't get into specifics indemnity or one more example you know they will if they try and set out details okay promoters will indemnify uh, promoters taking personal obligation is very very rare no promoters take personal obligation now unless there is a fraud mm-hmm. which is fine you know uh, so therefore you know if just say indemnity yes we will give you customary indemnities we will give you customary warranties i have seen in, investors asking for detailed warranties in the term sheet which is running right. to one or two pages don't encourage that practice so what the promoter should look for in answer to your question is they try and minimize the the size of the term sheet because it is a commercial document try and not uh, allow the investors to put legal uh, maybe uh, apart from headings nothing else uh, and if they still insist because they are investors 
and they want their ICE to approve it, then involve a lawyer right from the term sheet stage is what I would advise. Karan, you're absolutely right because today you're seeing term sheets that are one page long or typically a four pages long yeah. and that's kind of like the standard. But then there are certain term sheets that I have also seen which are like seven, eight pages long which are which just don't require you know so many clauses to be in it, especially when you're operating at the early stage. Later stages, of course, yeah. some of these things matter. There are later investors who have certain terms that and, and thresholds that, as you mentioned, <laughs> that you need to either hit or match before you're able to like proceed further. Now, the biggest question in my head is how do you approach these awkward conversations? Now, if, for example, there are red flags or there are terms that you as a founder do not agree with, and I have seen in my own personal experience, and we've had a few founders which we have been we had been speaking to in the past who had responded in a lengthy email explaining why they feel certain things are wrong when we, you know, they, they got back to us. And sometimes either they hadn't proofread their own emails or that the language that they used was not, you know, the right language to be, you know, using when you're speaking to somebody who might be putting a lot of money into your company. And that often irks the investor. It's obviously not the best approach here, or there is no one size fit all solution here. But what can really be a standard practice across the board is understanding what is a template for an awkward conversation. So how do you even start that? Now say I have already found a red flag. Now, how do I breach that conversation with somebody? How do I be like, oh, this is going to be awkward. This is, I don't know if they're going to like now not want to invest in my company. What's the best sort of approach that I should take as a founder when I particularly have something to make, a point to make to my investor or a potential investor? Well, I would say that, uh, you know, to have a conversation, there is no, there is there is no alternate uh, to confronting uh, the investor, and like you rightly said, uh, the tone and your attitude should be right. Uh, maybe sometimes emails uh, may not come across. You know, you some sometimes you're not dealing you're not dealing with a sophisticated promoter. Sometimes the investors understand. Sometimes they may not necessarily understand. Right. Everyone is different. Uh, they are different. Uh, they have different personalities. They have different temperaments. Yeah, I would say the best is. Uh, nothing. There is there is no alternate, and I and this is a general rule according to me. Even if I want to bring up some point as a lawyer to a uh, opponent, my opposite side lawyer, uh, I think uh, I always believe in instead of exchanging multiple emails or I just you know I would prefer to preference is to go and meet that person. Uh, because it, it, you know, you can ex actually explain to that person that this is what the issue is. And I think if you are not expressing your issue, if you are having, you know, like you said, it's an awkward moment. It is a issue which, which how do I express it? I think there is, you have to speak it out uh, with the with a with a potential investor because you are going to partner with him. If you are feeling awkward to even express an issue, a gen I'm assuming it's just a genuine issue. It's not a negotiating tool. That, oh, I want to push, I want to, if you want to position it, I'm assuming that's not your question, right? It's not about positioning. It's a genuine issue. If it's a genuine issue and he, there is an issue with promoter is not able to accept it. And so therefore he has to speak with the uh, with the investor and, and speak with him on the phone, you know, in this COVID period or personally meet if possible and express to him that why is there an issue? And I think 
99% of us uh, investor would uh, appreciate where he's coming from if, if they are not able to appreciate because they have their own reasons because you have to understand that investors also have a mandate right they it's not their money it's the is the is their uh, lp's money that they are investing and therefore they have the responsibility and if it, if they believe the investment managers believe that it is something which will not internally fly it is important that 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 is informed to him right there instead of kind of not informing to him on in this point later so i personally feel that if you have an issue i think the best way is to just just speak out if it's a genuine issue not a positional issue if it's a position then you can always there are different ways to deal with it uh, you can always have a issue of good cop bad cop you can always put a advisor in front and ask him that oh my advisor is pushing for that point because you know promoter doesn't want to push directly so you can always push to advisors etc so i am assuming your question is not about positioning which is a very simple fix but if it is a genuine issue the way to address it is is to either speak with the promo, uh, to the investor or meet him and explain that why is there a reservation on the promoter's end to accept this explain to him and they will understand meaning i am telling i have represented several investors and uh, you know and i think when you are talking at a term sheet stage you are actually, there are no lawyers involved even in, even investors don't necessarily involve lawyers at term sheet stage it's a template like you rightly said which they use which they use for all their investors any deal, they may use their internal legal but usually external lawyers are very rare even from such point of view at a term sheet stage. it's rare i'm not saying it's not used but it's rare that's a fantastic point that you make because there are very few things that deal makers worry about more than figuring out who has greater leverage and how best to use whatever power that they have now that push and pull power keeps happening all throughout in the ecosystem it's all about initially it begins with how much of my company am i willing to give away from a founder perspective over when a vc thinks we need to have certain percentage points when we make an investment in this company so there's always going to be that push and pull in trying to understand what is the best um harmony or an equilibrium here and there is no ideal equilibrium let's just put it that Absolutely. way it is surprising then that they often so ignore the crucial source of power or put themselves in unnecessarily weak positions and this is very true in venture negotiations than anywhere else that i've seen and one of the most obvious variables in that negotiation is the attractiveness of the alternatives to the deal right now when you take a potential vc deal the more firms that are interested in your startup the more leverage you have at least on the outside that's kind of like how it looks and although you should avoid squeezing long term partners to their uh, bottom dollar as a startup in the opening example uh, you know in, in when we talked about that ex- a couple of examples in the opening part of the uh, episode one should certainly leverage their alternatives to fight for terms that are really important you know once the deal is signed discarded alternatives will carry a very little value and weightage Uh, and any leverage that one has uh, founder has uh, you know will will perhaps be diminished once something is signed at that stage at least and many entrepreneurs worry about uh, the power the amount of power that they might uh, end up having or while negotiating the term sheet it might be too less in their opinion now we spoke about fair market value we spoke about the power now taking both into context here because one of the first things that a founder um, or even a vc firm thinks about is how do i get the best value at that particular stage now we are talking about leverages here 
what can founders really leverage when they're thinking about valuations and really trying to get a fair market value for what they're building at that particular stage? Because when you enter these conversations, we also discussed this before the recording, it's very difficult to really understand how do you like assess and value some of these companies because today there are copycat models that are popping out everywhere in the ecosystem and they're very similar companies being built across um, the, uh, the country. So when you're looking at it, do you look at, or when you're advising your clients, are you looking at it and saying, try and understand the benchmarks and the ecosystem and then therefore try and go back and try and understand your valuations? Or is it in your experience when you've seen the back and forth, when you've seen the negotiations, when you've seen deals fall through between VCs and founders, what are some of the things that kind of just make it very difficult for this whole pill to be swallowed because it's not a happy conversation. There are very few instances where a founder comes and says, my company is valued at this. And a VC says, fair enough, boss, I agree with you. Or vice versa. A VC will say, this is what your company is at. And the founder is like, yeah, I agree. That barely happens. There's always that awkward push and pull. So in your experience, when have deals really fallen through when it comes specifically with respect to valuations? Well, honestly, um, there are, I must admit that there are very few instances where, uh, because this is not strictly speaking a legal point, and therefore they may not necessarily consult uh, their, their legal advisors for this. But whatever. But is it, important for them, is it important for them to consult? Sorry to interrupt you, but you did mention that a lot of founders don't end up, um, you know, getting advice from their so for, uh, lawyers at this for, point. For instance, so for instance, if they have signed the term sheet, right? It is a, though it's a non-binding term sheet, but there are certain clauses which are binding. So if they have signed the term sheet and if they get a better valuation from an investor who has not signed the term sheet, obviously, then they will consult an, a legal advisor saying that, okay, what are the ways for me to kind of, can I look at it? Am I legally allowed to look at outside? Can I speak with someone? Because there is always a clause. Some people will say that, hey, listen, the exclusivity clause is over. Now, can I go and speak with someone? I've got, I'm getting a better offer. Is it legally permissible? So that, of course, those kind of conversation, of course, comes to us because there are there is a legal element to it. Promoter is not coming to us saying that, hey, listen, what do I do? Because it's purely commercial that they are getting a better valuation. It's a no-brainer that, you know, they want to take it up. But, uh, but I, I have also witnessed uh, that some in some instances, the promoters have actually uh, got a better valuation after the exclusivity period, but they have, in all fairness, gone to the existing investor and said that this is what is, uh, I have signed the deal with you, so I don't wish to sign the deal with him. And, uh, you know, uh, I would like to continue with you. This is what he's offering to me, but I'm not putting a kind of hard ball at you. You know, please consider it. And I have seen instances like that where legally they could have chosen to not go ahead with a particular investor. So I think it is also a lot about uh, what is the character of the promoter? You know whether they are whether they want to really. If the investor has spent a lot of money and time on the company by doing legal diligence, etc., uh, do they want to really uh, just kind of abandon the investor, or do they want to have a genuine conversation with them? So uh, I, I I don't know if I can answer your question directly, but you know there are instances where. Uh, promote if promoters have got a better valuation than the investor it is usually before the term sheet is signed because like you said that that is used as a tool for them to negotiate for better terms whether it is a valuation whether it is a uh, right 
usually the valuation or maybe little less about the rights because uh, you know it, it's very simple for them to say that listen i am getting a better valuation so either you up your price because you know more or less the investors are going to ask for the same set of rights uh, in a venture capital or a private equity transaction so it is usually uh, the the number the it's a number game where they will simply say that listen i am i don't think you are giving me a better price because i'm getting a better price from someone else so if you have if you if you are willing to up the price i am happy to go with you because sometimes it's also about the brand that you are getting associated with not necessarily the money sometimes you know the investors might surprise feel that if the same if this particular kind of investor is willing to give me the same price or maybe a little less i would rather go with this person because you know at that stage again it's again different for with venture capital and private equity but for a venture capital Uh, at a seed level or even at a series series a level it is important that he gets the right name in his cap table because that can lead to cap to series b a series b is going to look at who is on your cap table and if you see some sophisticated investor uh perception is going to change it's a very interesting point that you make there because um you know this is probably one of the biggest areas that founders often are confused on how to deal with and uh again this is somewhat a commonality in in the crowdsourced uh questions that i had in understanding how to really have these conversations with um uh, any sort of investors existing investors the new ones that are coming on board now you had previously also mentioned two things and i want to get back to one of them right now which is understanding or mastering the math of esop allocations and you previously alluded to the importance of how founders think about it especially when it comes to breaking down you know the the, the way that it's structured and sometimes vcs will ask for an excessive esop allocation it is in the vcs best interest to have as much esop as possible allocated before the round because it means less future dilution uh, dilution for the vc now the part of the job for the vcs to deal with their investments as much as possible and we kind of like understand that because that's the name of the game now furthermore in an early exit scenario the unallocated esop benefits all shareholders right not just the founders but also the ones diluted from the pre round esop allocation while every round has an esop allocation or a top up in the case in some cases the number drastically differs from round to round and it's unheard for a vc to ask for it's it's kind of very common or it isn't that surprising when a vc comes and says i need 20% esop allocation sometimes even more you as a founder and this was something that i was talking to vibhav domkundwar of better capital as well and he was talking about how founders often get into this trap especially when it comes to esop because esop seems like such a basic thing but when you get into the details of it it is so difficult to actually structure it in a right way so that the future of the company is kind of secured especially if you're thinking about building a very sustainable business which can either be acquired or can you know see some sort of an exit at the end of the tunnel what kind of again negotiations that we need to like founders can be possibly getting into their vcs when vcs come with an approach of i need certain allocation here at this stage and that's the only way that this is going to work or in some cases we've also seen for instance companies running out of money 
and sometimes it's often you know it's a very vulturesque situation where the vcs can put some very weird terms on the table that often ends up you know being very at that point timely and much needed for the founders to make the companies work but the other thing that that they can do is go and have a bridge round they can go to their existing investors and say hey i want to raise quick round that's typically a bridge to a series a or a series b and so on and so forth uh just to like ride out the turmoil that they have currently that they're facing now in that such situations as well there's certain terms that kind of put in place but what vcs also need to understand i'm sure you'll agree with this is not to position the company in such a way that there are no future investors that will ever get attracted to this company at all because if you do that then you're never going to see an exit as a uh, vc fund yourself So in all of this, when it comes to ESOPs, when it comes to these weird negotiations and uh, unfortunate circumstances that a startup has to power through, like the pandemic was a great example where we saw, of course, a lot of funding, but then a lot of companies suffered and had to reach these bridge rounds in between. What's the best advice and what's the best approach from both? I want to also bring VCs into this because we've only been talking about from a founder perspective, and I've done that done so very. strategically because a lot of the listeners are founders but now bring the vcs also into the table and trying to kind of educate them about this process i'm sure a bunch of the senior folks understand but the emerging fund managers today who are putting forth um these terms or will see these terms play out in the future for their portfolio companies what kind of advice or what kind of things should they be thinking about in terms of such unique situations and even when we think about esops where can they themselves either negotiate for a better position for themselves or try and understand the name of the game and really make sure that they are not pricing themselves either out of a future round or building up situations where they're de-risking their own investments from a futuristic standpoint see i i honestly i must say that it is this this situation is sounds very theoretical to me uh, to be honest uh because let me step into the shoes of an investor the uh, for an investor and you know the what is esop at the end of the day it is effectively we want to make sure that the employees some of the senior employees who are working for us or it's an incentive for some employees who are young and new to us we want to right. incentivize that they should either not quit our company they should they are important to us and you know we want to incentivize them and we we can't afford to pay them a fat salary and therefore let's give them a job so therefore i will be very surprised if investor a venture capital and a promoter is not on the same page on that because it is i will be i don't know why will an a venture capital investor insist that you should have a 20% esop which is ridiculously high maybe it's just an uh, uh, example that you threw um uh, uh, you know because it is in investor's interest that the promoter is in the game this promoter skin should be in the game so the majority of the shares uh, particularly at a at a pre series a or series a or even series b you know the promoter should be holding majority of the chunk and he wants to give an esop because it is perhaps a request from the promoter or maybe the investor is saying listen let's make this company a little robust uh, let's have a good corporate governance and uh, let's uh, find some ways to retain some key employees that we have yeah. uh, who are critical for us and let's yeah. uh, and i most of this uh, esop terms of vesting schedule is not very simple it is it is vesting uh, schedule the, the 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 over a period of time it will vest 
and uh, right. uh, the conditions are quite stringent and they're quite standard if i may say that so you know which kind of sometimes gives a certainty that uh, these employees are going to stick with us uh, and if they are going to leave or they come to commit some sort of fraud it's going to go back they are going to you know lose their rights uh, so i feel that uh, uh, usually the promote if if the investor is insisting on a higher threshold or for an esop uh, he needs to give some reason to the promoter as simple as that uh, you know and i and, and i have never seen it i have i have always seen a discussion between both of them where they chalk out a plan that let's this is the business plan this is what we have this is what we have for the employees and you know it is also a function of are we a employee heavy company usually you see these instances in a manufacturing sort of company or employee heavy company or some cases which is very competitive where you are you, you have a fear that your key employees are going to join some competitors and you need to incentivize them and you know they are very critical for your for your growth of the company so i think it is also a function of all this uh, you know that what are what is critical is the pool what should be the pool should it be 5% 10% uh what that is the overarching broader percentage and what is critical is the terms of the esop that a uh, investor will typically help the promoter and listen it's not going to be an easy vesting schedule it is going to be over a period of time and these are the terms and conditions on which we are going to do it so so i feel uh, it is it is something which which an investor and promoter both have to sit together and if they are not on the same page on that if a investor is being unreasonable in his ask nor 99% he will have some rational for it and if the promoter does not agree to that rational then you know there is something wrong because something that i can't imagine where on an esop allocation there is a disagreement that oh it should be 20% 25% and not 5% or 10% so there has to be you know it, it, it this question requires more of facts analysis than a broader kind of thing broadly i have already answered that you know it's very very rare very unlikely that investor and promoter will not be on the same page because no investor would want the promoters to not have a stake in the company and they will right. want their key employees to have higher stake or a unusually higher stake in the company very odd so meaning i guess it's all a function of a uh, discussion and why is there a factual exception required in that particular company and mm-hmm. it, is, it it will it, it has to be sorted bilaterally between both of them uh, and like i said it's the critical thing is the esop terms that's the key uh, the esop allocation overall is 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 not as big an issue because investor will always say that the terms has to be approved by me as a veto matter so right. that's where and usually the promoters take investors help for drafting the esop policy now that also brings me to an interesting point and i was talking about this with one of the young founders um about 4 months ago and i thought a real incident that took place i won't obviously name the founder of the company or the vc firm but this was um an early founder very early in his 20s and um somebody had introduced him to a named vc firm in the country and um you know he this advisor that he had who had introduced him was somebody who was very close to him and he really appreciated the help so on and so forth now unfortunately for both the advisor and the founder the vc firm said that they need to be the only one on the cap table and they'll do the complete round and they can't have anybody else they wanted the majority of um, the equity for that particular round and they'll be the only investor now here was the founder saying but hey there were a lot of people who helped me during the process helping me set up you know like my initial set of customers 
helping me, you know, make that intro to you as well. And a bunch of other investors who are also interested. Now, I get it that you're a named VC firm, you know, having you on my cap table will automatically boost a lot of my chances in terms of success, both from a customer perspective, as well as just from a funding perspective. And they were got into all of these negotiations where the VC firm said, it's either me or it's not me. And I'm happy to like write your check right away. Now the founder was put in such a unique position where he was like, what do I do? And he, he came to us saying, what do I do? We, I really want to have these advisors on board, but I just don't have the allocation, unfortunately, from you know this lead. Uh, perhaps a mature founder could have made the case, but young founders today often find themselves in such unique positions where they don't have that leverage. They don't have that, um, you know, sort of, they don't come from positions where they're able to have that negotiation. How do you recommend somebody go about with, not just, I mean, this is an example, but situations where, you know, it's, it's an, it's, it's an asymmetric sort of ecosystem, right? Unfortunately, the VCs even, I mean, as much as we can say that founders have a say in the matter today, it's still an unfair game because VCs still call all the shots, especially the ones at the early stages, you know, where they have the money. The, we have seen the later stage companies come in early and having pre-seed stage funds now. And there are named VC funds getting into the early stage games. So this is really where it's it's a it's basically a frenzy. Everybody wants the best deal and they are going to do their best efforts to get all the deals possible and keep majority of the shares to themselves. They understand that if they get that there, they'll get their exits at their B's and C's and they're happy with that kind of um, money that they get on the investment. But from a founder, founder perspective, it's so difficult for somebody to have this sort of a conversation or just don't even know what do you do in that situation because... I'm, we weren't even the right people to advise this person and he couldn't go to the advisor because the advisor is the one he wants to bring on for the cap table. So I was also stuck. I was like, Hey, I don't know who you should be speaking with either. And any advice I give you will perhaps be out of, again, theoretical. I don't know if it's the right thing or not. So from somebody who's perhaps seen such kind of instances play out in the industry, what do you recommend somebody do in this situation? So, well, let me take your example, right? Because it's, it's, it's very hard to generalize this kind of thing. It's perhaps very rare. Yeah. Uh, uh, so if, if such kind of thing comes in, and let's say the founder comes to me and says that Siddharth, what do I do? Uh, you know, and I'm, I, I'm, I, it's not my sector, so to say, because I'm a lawyer. But what I would tell him is, listen, you know, if I was you, I would ask myself two, three questions. One is that, is this name going to, firstly, it's the attitude, right? Is, is, do, do I want to, what is my attitude? Let's say if I am the founder, am, am I okay with someone? Uh, see, because different venture capitals have different attitudes, right? right. Like sometimes it's, it's not every venture capital necessarily have a dominating attitude. There are, there are a few and we all know, but not everyone. And then as a founder, whether I, are you okay with that kind of, you know, attitude uh, of an investor. Firstly, is that that's that's an interpersonal thing that a founder has to want. There's nothing legal in this in this conversation. So one is that uh, I, is I would ask him to consider if I was the founder uh, or I would ask myself actually if I'm, I'm saying if I'm the founder, I should ask myself that am I okay with with, with, with sharing my cap table with someone who is, is so dominating or who is actually putting a set of requests which is making me very uncomfortable and express to him that it is uncomfortable but he says well this is what I need. If you need me, get rid of them. So that, that's the first question that I'll ask myself. Number one. 
Number two is, uh, let's say if I come to terms with it, it's fine. You know, I need money. He's a he's a good venture capital, and I want his name on my cap table. It's going to only benefit me. It cannot. I don't see any downside. Then I will see that all right. Then uh, clearly he is willing to give an exit to all the people, all my other advisors, or he doesn't want any of them. So I think I will then, uh, you know, commercially take a call whether if I want to go ahead with him. That uh, you know, that I, just the price that has to be paid. If these advisors are already on my board, or if they are not on my board, and I was planning to have them on my board by issuing an equity, then I would just try and uh, monetize, give them a proper whatever money that I can give them uh, instead of the equity that I was planning to offer to them. So I think it is it is really. Uh, a situation which is very very fact driven so i will i have to jump into that facts to analyze it and say that if if i am not okay with the attitude there is no conversation i will actually i have ha- i have actually seen in my experience a f- promoter saying no to a venture capital who had a very big name in spite of that because of the dominant attitude okay some promoters are just not comfortable and it is not necessarily always about money while they meet they need money but some people are just not okay with it and people who are okay with it honestly speaking you know then it is just a matter of having a conversation with your other set of people and and try and negotiate a good exit for them because if they are willing to take them off then the least you can ask is that get them a better price that's it uh, you know and 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 and, and then we can we can work uh, and also i would tell him if if he was my client or if i was the founder i would say that because i'm cert- i'm very certain if if someone some venture capital wants to take a majority stake in my company eventually he will want to sell my company to a to a strategic player then i would make sure that that period is defined because i don't know for how long will i be able to stay with this particular investor because clearly right. is very dominating and is going to tie my vision and he is going to say that this is how you should run the company and i may or may not necessarily be able to live with that situation so i will then try and define my exit period with him that all right maybe 2 years down the line you make sure that you give me a complete exit because that's the way to agree to his terms you know mm. by 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 understanding the entire game because you know the founder might just feel ki okay listen i have this is my company but i am happy to take an exit after 3 years so long as i'm getting a good price and if this person this investor coming in uh, maybe i'll achieve it in next 2 years not 3 years so you know so long as he defines his exit period with this particular investor i think then it's a win win for both again this is something that i often tell people as well vcs don't make money on term sheets and founders don't make money on by raising money <laughs> you know <laughs> like at that point you need to also understand like whatever the situation is it really comes down to building great businesses like even in this particular scenario my advice was not i understand the deals i understand what should really happen but it was more from a perspective of you need to ensure that anyone you bring on to the cap table at this point is not going to make you a millionaire or a billionaire overnight and neither is the vc fund going to see an exit at the end of the day is this a partnership that's going to work because you guys are going to be in this together like if you it's almost like a, i mean there are un, there are marriages you can get off but there are no vc sort of situations and partnerships that you can get off because on the contrary the vc can kick you off the company but you can barely kick vcs off the cap table once you bring them on The only way, sorry to interrupt you. The only way it can work is that the VC is selling the entire company to a strategic player. That is very real, right? And in that situation, VC will earn money. See, we, we, 
the, that's what i'm saying that you know a lot of times it's all about um uh, 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 practicality in which you need to see it if mm-hmm. you know that this is a financial venture capital player and yeah. he does not know how to run this business i know how to run this business so yeah. he cannot do this he is never going to let me go because i i am running the business i am the promoter but he right. wants to have more than 50% on the cap table so then what i can do is that i can take a leap can i take a leap of faith for which that promoter has to do some research about the investor and you know look at his history and if there is a good history that this investor has the potential of selling this entire company to a good strategic player and the chances of the strategic player becoming good is it can also come out of the brand name this is venture capital is carrying so keeping all that thing in mind i will perhaps take a call or i'll ask the founder to take a call based on the situation because then the real exit for him the real deal for him is going to be uh, when the entire company is being sold and perhaps the new in, uh, manager or the new investor or the strategic player might ask the promoter to handhold him for some time uh, he will definitely not ask the venture capital uh, venture capitalist to stay but they will definitely ask the the promoter to maybe handhold for for 12 months or 18 months or 24 months now it's a very good point that you bring up there as well because at the end of the day it really comes down to the long term game and both of them are in this for the long term and that's really where even you made a very good point about the strategic you know strategic angle of is the investor in this to actually make a sale in that case some of the dynamics really changes yeah and understanding when and where those mechanics really change and come into operation is very important from a founder perspective as well now we've been talking about these various scenarios and i've been obviously trying to bring up some of the questions that i surveyed um some of the founders in the industry as well but one of the things that i'm really curious about from my own personal standpoint is asking you some unique situations that may have come up in your experience now you know without taking any names here are there certain things that founders often just don't pay attention to and this could be negotiation from any perspective right term sheet co-founder employees could be an investor it could be a contract gone wrong it could be something on the regulatory front like something that's gone wrong along the process which founders often feel you know what it will be fine we'll we'll ride through this but then once you kind of like start getting into the specifics they realize that this is way harder than they even expected it to be so in your experience lately or you know it'd be better if it's lately cuz people can kind of like relate to it rather than perhaps something that's towards 2010 2012 has there anything that's kind of come up that kind of is a red flag and people often kind of feel i or they could have avoided it more than just you know trying to like manage it towards the end well uh, used to happen a lot earlier uh, you know when uh, you know, i i i remember investors used to take necessary legal like legal action in the sense uh, start sending notices for a drag along and what not because the exit was not given and the promoter used to panic and the, uh, and when i said that why don't i look at the agreement and the agreement was completely one sided yeah. um so it, i have seen that of course yes um uh, uh but off late uh, what i sometimes uh, feel is is about the compliance you know i think sometimes the promoters are still while they may have been you know uh, over a period of time got little uh, a sophisticated if i think that's the right word to use uh, but understanding the importance of a lawyer in a deal making but they often are paid don't pay much attention uh, to the compliance bit and that uh, you know so whether 
uh, whether it is uh, uh, unless of course a uh, uh, an active uh, foreign investor comes and sits in your company or a sophisticated uh, venture capital investors or a private equity investors comes and sits in your company then he of course monitors your compliance or he makes makes sure usually typically makes sure that you know you have the right officers uh, to deal with that but usually what i have seen is uh, if such kind of uh, supervision is not there the promoters go a little light on compliance and uh, then they realize that okay whether it is a non compliance under the companies act whether it is a non compliance under the factories act if there is a factory if there is a non compliance or if there is some very stupid onerous term that they have agreed in one of their commercial contracts that comes out only when a legal diligence is done on the company or some issue comes out of that then they come to us and when we look at it and we are like okay this is in a real mess and for us to get out is not very easy because you know there is a process for example if it is a company law non compliance we have to go to a compounding process and the compounding process is a process you know it's a time it's money everything if it's a non compliance from an rbi point of view again it's a process compounding application with rbi you know uh, the the potential penalty that the rbi will impose on you etc if it is a factories act non compliance you know it's it, it 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 to undo something which has done so on compliance i have seen usually uh, they going very uh, not very active or not very uh, sometimes unfortunately it's about a wrong advice uh, that is being given to them meaning i have also seen those kind of cases so there is a lawyer but maybe they have gone to someone who is not the right right lawyer for that kind of work you know maybe they have gone to some uh, someone who did not have the experience to deal with that situation but in terms of uh, as of today i only see it in this in, in in terms of compliance business contracts not negotiating you know because they don't have that lawyer every day for every small commercial contract that they are doing uh, but for deals usually like i said uh, you know these days they will typically have a have a have a sophisticated lawyer or a law firm representing them so therefore my example when you know one of my client uh, had uh, agreed to a lot of onerous terms uh, when a drag along notice went to him he realized that liquidation preference is double day uh, indemnity is unlimited um there is put option which is effectively the investor can uh, ask the promoters to buy the shares uh, so it's a personal liability on the promoters uh, so undertaking a lot of personal liability all that used to happen earlier which it's very rare now very very rare at least i have not seen i have realized that they were just but as of now i only see such kind of lapses in commercial contracts or compliance like that. so those are the two things that i have seen Does that really goes goes to show you the evolution that's come about in the industry in just ten years? Like how founders have matured so much? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I have, I'm like I said, I was very pleasant. I'm very pleasantly surprised that founders these days are not they they are they understand they engage uh, 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 lawyers. They are willing to pay money. Uh, right. They they understand that it is not. I don't want to sign on a dotted line. Very. mostly i'm i'm generalizing it very rare mm-hmm. maybe there are very few cases who may still not choose to do it but usually mostly they are doing it and uh, they understand the importance of which is very good that's so refreshing to hear as well because i come from a place where a lot of people ask questions which are simple and basic but it is so important to like you said you know you and i were discussing this way before the recording as well sometimes it's the silly and the most common sense kind of questions that pe- that people tend to like kind of forget and more importantly are embarrassed to ask those questions 
and the more often you kind of get clarity on that the better positioned you are to make decisions and build companies so that you are protecting yourself to begin with and more importantly protecting every stakeholder that's part of your journey and that it's very refreshing to hear that founders today are very cautious and you know mindful when it comes to uh, the way that they're building out and good to see a lot of ecosystem players coming in and helping and supporting them in that whole process now yeah. the last segment um and we'll probably spend a couple of minutes here is you know i wanted to be very hot on topic right now with the ipos and things that are really um you know getting towards an exciting couple of years within the indian vc ecosystem we just as a matter going to a very um you know very popular sort of uh, an exit which kind of gave a lot of investors liquidity and more importantly just got the whole ecosystem excited now when you are a founder and you know you're thinking obviously of a long term vision of somehow exiting at some point um that could be a 5 year 10 year 20 year cycle and ideally the the sooner the better for investors right how can you as a founder today sitting at a seed stage pre seed stage series a stage kind of keep your vcs in mind when you're structuring and negotiating the deal so that you're giving them the best exit and the way out should they want to at some point of course the best performing companies vcs want to stay on as much as possible but we do understand the industry that some cases it's not possible because you need the tiger globals of the world to really come in you know finance your rounds at the later stages to really get you to a different different stage so when you're a founder and you're trying to like build out your cap table you're building out the structure of how you're really going to envision exits for certain investors who have been part of your cycle how do you have that again like how do you how are you sitting down with an investor and saying hey listen investor a i've loved everything that we've done together but this is really the time that you know we got we want to like think about having an exit we are thinking about people that coming in or is it an unspoken sort of a role where vcs actually get it today that you know like i'm happy making an exit here or is it more about me convincing an investor and saying you got to be okay you got to be taking a premature sort of an exit here but you're still making money on it but it's still a premature exit in the vc's mind but it is it is absolutely i think it is unsaid uh, and i think the venture capitalists understand it very well i see also you know it is let's let's put it in perspective right what what are we talking about that if some investor has come invested at a seed level or a series a level right and when the listing is happening there is a long period that we are talking about it's not yeah. it's very rare that the series a is happening and in two years the ipo happens it, it's almost yeah. not possible right uh, because obviously otherwise there would have been no series a it could have been a much larger invest in the investment round so i think what happens is when the seed uh, investors or a series a or a pre series a investors are sitting in your company and by the time you reach the ipo stage their investment cycle is already over and the investors would be more desperate to exit uh, some in some cases they may want a piece of the pie by saying that you know we want to retain some percentage yeah. uh, in the when the company goes public but that is a function of whether there is a place and that is always a very uns- unspoken unsaid rule which the investors understand that if there is place i would love to be there if there is no place i understand because anyway i am getting the money and most mostly the investors uh, either would have invested again uh, because they wanted to uh, be visible at the ipo because right when the company is going ipo uh, you know it's it's not going to happen overnight you also will get feelers about it as an investor in the company that company is going really big and you may you will always have the ability to keep investing in the company 
and maintain your stake. Uh, so it's a it's a function of so many things. So if the investor has chosen to not up or maintain its stake by doing a preemptive round round every further round is happening at a higher valuation. If they choose to you know say that okay my exit security is lower, this is what I put in the company. I put actually substantially lesser amount than what the other investors are putting, and therefore it is very unrealistic for me to expect that I will get a place in the IPO. So I think it's also a function of all that you know, uh, and realistically speaking, uh, very rarely an investor who is coming at a much later round. Has chances of staying in the company at a much uh, at a, at whatever threshold they are in, rather than you know these early investors staying in the company. Early investors is very very rare chance because unless they keep maintaining their stake every time the new investment happens at a new valuation, because they all have a limited fund life and it will get over, and they right. have their own compulsion to exit. Right. No, fantastic points that you made on that front, and uh, I've been enjoying this conversation. And I know we've been speaking for a good part of two hours now. So uh, I also be want to be very mindful of your time. As much as I'm enjoying this, one last question that I had for you was, from a founder perspective and a VC perspective, like two pieces of advice that you perhaps wanted to give emerging fund managers. I'm sure that the later fund managers have been there for. 10 years 15 years they kind of get the game and they understand the importance and this evolution that they have seen across and you've rightly mentioned that they have almost become very strategic advisors as well in the journeys of a lot of their founders so they get the game but there are emerging fund managers who are as young as 25 26 30 32 or all first time fund managers themselves who are going through this whole legal process or trying to like understand how to perhaps sometimes especially the ones operating at pre seed pre seed stage about even writing um checks and then issuing term sheets and so on and so forth what kind of advice do you have for first time fund managers operating in the country right now and the second is what kind of advice would you give founders first time founders typically because the second times at least are their experience either they've made a mistake and they've experienced it or they've just been cognizant about things going on but first timers in the industry vc founders what kind of advice would you have for both so well uh, one thing which is where where which i think this is also uh, uh, it's important that a that a legal advisor actually does this when they speak or advise their respective clients yeah uh, so i think from a uh, from a founders point of view i i have to tell them that listen it is never an apple to apple comparison so stop uh, you know expecting that everything that an investor asks you have to reciprocate and ask the same so they have founders have to understand that they are the investors they are sharing money out of their pocket and you they will be seeking certain rights which you will not get because you are a founder and therefore if someone is selling you and you're again i i must say that advisors have a big role here to play right because it's, it is important that they inform their clients that it is it can it is not and it cannot be an apple to apple comparison uh, investors will have certain beneficial rights compared to a promoter for so, instance if you could uh, you could just mention one or two of those what should the founders be willing to like just say i'm okay negotiating this completely or letting go of this well uh, so one is uh, that for investors they will uh, always uh, typically ask uh, for an if a promoter is he wants to transfer their shares uh, they will ask for something called as a right of first refusal right. which is a process where the promoter is required to do a price discovery before he yeah. comes to the investor so the investor has the price uh, visible with him uh, which is the real price from an outside yeah again that trend is changing like i said it's an evolving thing yeah. drafting has changed over you know one decade like we briefly spoke about certain points 
even this point a lot of promoters and investors are getting comfortable i know okay. that okay. Are, uh, uh, you know they are saying that all right we can live with the rofo which is a contraction of rofer yeah. rofo is effectively you don't require a third party for purchase because what the some of the investors who are comfortable with this is they are saying that what are we talking about here we are sitting in the company we are sitting in the cap table why is he going to go to a third party we are willing to fund him meaning right. it, it is not practical yeah. it is like because they realize this investors realize that these lawyers again i am not saying all but some of the lawyers and some of the founders maybe or some lawyers are mis misadvising their client mm-hmm. that this is such an important point there is a big fight and which goes on for hours and hours or maybe days on what is rofer rofer why should i if you are asking for a rofer i also want a rofer so doesn't really mm-hmm. it's not important yeah. but yes this is one thing which if i was advising a promoter and the investor is asking for a rofer i and they are saying but we will not give a rofer to you we are very mm-hmm. particular we will only give a rofer i am i will not waste time i say it's fine go for it that's okay. one example uh, other example is they will ask for exit exit is very critical they are investing in the company because because of exit they right. will ask for a board seat they will ask for an indemnity and uh, they will typically not offer you an indemnity uh they will say that we are investors we will not give you money okay mm. beyond the point i would fight much uh on this point because i understand that they have a mandate uh, they are investors they have certain fund mandate because right. i also do fund set of work so okay. i know that uh, you know there are private placement memorandum there are mandates that they go get they, they require certain protections uh like a board seat like an observer seat they need it they are like that you can invest in companies provided you get blah blah xyz yeah. so certain things are are purely out of that and you know you need to respect and acknowledge that and therefore you know uh, no investor is going to invest in you till there is a visibility of exit so therefore when they say that okay after four years there is going to be an exit there is going to be uh, we will try for an ipo if ipo is not happening we will do a buyback buyback under law can only happen if the company has sufficient capital so right. all these points has to be informed to a promoter he right. cannot be misguided by saying oh you know he is going to ruin your company he is going to take all the money from your company there are certain regulations of buyback uh, then there is a, a strategic sale third party sale in which they will typically ask you to uh, investors will ask that you know they will want an ability to drag you uh, you know which is called drag along right so effectively mm-hmm. uh, they have the right to take your company from you and sell to some, someone else now it's again completely uh, how i explain this point Uh, to my client, let's say I am explaining this plan to a promoter, and I say, that, "Hey, listen, this investor is saying that he's going to sell your company to someone else." And he says, "Oh, don't! Uh, this is my company. I've been, I have, I have set it up, and I have been uh, running it for so many years. How can he sell my company?" Yeah. So your, you know, a lawyer's role is very important. That is, drag along right out of market. Is it out of ordinary? Is it something which they will not ask? You can't just take their money and say, "I will not give anything in return." So you know, these are certain instances. Uh, they will ask for veto matter some investors will ask for a board uh, quorum seat also that they need uh, their you know some investors not all uh, some investors may be comfortable so long as they are getting the right to veto certain critical matters but some investors insist that they want a right to uh, sit on the uh, on the quorum their their presence should be required the quorum so now instead of fighting that oh, okay i will push back but if it is not they are saying that listen this is a mandate that we have i would simply say all right If you don't turn up, then we'll wait for a week. Like we'll get adjourned for a week, and in the week, whoever is present, then we will not wait for you again. And the investors usually, I have seen, agree to that. So that you know, these are ways. These are ways to solve for it instead of just 
sometimes you know like i had said at the beginning of this episode that certain things have you have to understand and acknowledge why is investor saying it uh, and then accordingly find a solution to it you know it is it always helps it is very important to find solutions yeah. instead of just you know kind of dragging a conversation right. so that is a promoter from an investor's point of view i would say that you know a lot of this uh, invest uh, you know i have seen some of the investors they just because they invest they going to shell the money i think particularly uh, for venture capitals not as much as a private or not uh, this may not be true for private equity mm-hmm. but uh, well it is in a way true for everyone but you know I, the reason i make the distinction between venture capital and private equity here is because venture capital investors are comparatively younger naive uh, not as established as a private equity promoter meaning a company where a private equity would invest right so therefore but in any case this rule applies everywhere that you know what is what is very important and here again i would say that uh, some advisors go wrong uh, sometimes a private equity investor also go wrong or a venture capital investor also go wrong. is the attitude of your negotiations you know that if you are going to negotiate because some of the promoters are very sensitive it's an amazing business it's a fabulous revenue generating business and everyone is dying to get in meaning everyone from an investor point of view yeah. because they can see that this company is going big and it's right. eventually for an ipo you know like 5 10 years down the line it is important to put across your point to put across you know very sensitive because promoters can be sometimes very sensitive and if you are going to come you or your advisors are going to come in a negotiating table with an arrogance that it's my way or the highway it's you are rubbing the promoter on the wrong side so maybe he's not very big today but if you see as a potential in that promoter as a as an investor in your when you look at his books and when you look at other uh revenue factors uh, for the company i think these are important factors that a private equity investors if sometimes private equity investors is very very uh accommodating but the advisors are not because you know the right sort of they don't have you know sometimes uh you require to have a leash on your lawyers or an advisor right, right. So you 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 need not exceed your brief your you know like i said at the beginning of the episode that we our role is to facilitate sometimes we often tend to get carried away and exceed our brief and start asking and it becomes a matter of ego and pride that you know it's my point and i'll win it for you i think that's a wrong attitude i think the investor should come in interfere and say that this is fine and if investors are having this attitude then maybe uh, you know they should not in my opinion you know i think because uh, uh, what can happen uh, if you if you handle a sensitive situation uh, you know in a sensitive manner maybe there are certain points where the promoters may not be comfortable in the larger group maybe it's a matter of you speaking with him separately explaining to him your point of view uh, maybe it will just work meaning it and it always works in my experience so yeah that's that was that is one thing for the for the investor what a way, great way to conclude the episode because we started on the point of establishing the fact that the lawyers are part of this ecosystem so that they can facilitate the conversation we kind of like ended the episode very similarly on a note as well and uh, i think that just goes to like summarize the entire thing and we we delved into such great topics in between we got a few questions from some founders which we got answered but you've been extremely generous with your insights sadat and um i had a ball just trying to like understand a lot of these mechanics and even during my research it was really important to understand how some of these deals can go wrong and you kind of ended up debunking and demystifying some myths and i really appreciate you taking your time out and we i kind of like pushed it beyond 
the plan time as well. But I think this is the kind of content that is evergreen and that will live on for a long time. Even 10 years now, you look back, you can really see how the industry is kind of like grown from where Absolutely. it is today to where it might be in 2030. And that's kind of like the thing, like even when I was starting research for this episode, very little content came out from like 2008, 2009, you know, and it was very difficult for me to draw parallels. And it was like some historical blogs that somebody had written that I had to like review. But hopefully this kind of content can actually provide some sort of, um, you know, guiding light as we also try and understand how the maturity of, a, of an ecosystem has come about. So thanks to you for taking time out. Um, pleasure, pleasure. It was amazing. Likewise, amazing. I think which is why I think, uh, you know, when, when the conversation goes, uh, you know, seamlessly, I think you, know, you just don't look at the time. You yeah. know? So I think it was, <laughs> it was, it was, a, it was great. Uh, you know, likewise, a pleasure speaking with you. Well, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of our first episode in the legal series. But I'm extremely, extremely thrilled that Siddharth was able to share with us some golden nuggets with respect to some legal aspects a founder may himself or herself face during the course of their lifetime. Siddharth was extremely generous in sharing what conversations could look like from both sides of the table, especially with respect to negotiations. And I'm extremely grateful for his time. Now, if you're like me and you enjoyed that episode, one, I would highly recommend you look forward to the others as well that are coming through because they're going to be full of insights with respect to the legal aspects about running companies in India. And second, I would really appreciate your help if you could go ahead and share and subscribe to our podcast because that helps others discover the show as well. Now, if you do have any feedback with respect to any of the episodes or the legal series that I have planned, please drop me a note at bhatviakash.gmail.com or just shoot me a DM on Twitter. This is the first of many conversations that we're going to have on the subject. So make sure that you tune back in again next week. And until then, as always, continue to keep hustling everybody. And I'll see you on the flip side.